0: Hello, and welcome to episode 213 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. A warm welcome to Chantal K., Eric C., Stephen P., Jess L., and Jesse S. to The Modern Manager community. One of the benefits of membership is that you get extended episodes with guests. You get an extra 5 to 15 minutes of their wisdom, and for solo episodes, you get an extra few minutes with me. I'm sharing this now because today's extended interview is one that you won't want to miss. So go to the slash join and sign up for $5 per month. And once you do, you'll be invited to the members only feed so that you can listen to the full episodes right in your podcast player. And you can go back and listen to the extended versions of prior episodes too. Now today's guest is Demir Bentley. Demir teaches hard-hitting efficiency techniques and proven accountability strategies that have helped clients generate millions in revenue while saving thousands of hours. In the past eight years, he's helped more than 50,000 professionals, including executives from Facebook, Google, Uber, and PepsiCo, helping them prevent burnout and create more freedom in their lives. And Demir's advice has been highlighted in Forbes, Bloomberg, Entrepreneur, and more. Demir and I talk about the number one routine you should do every week to exponentially improve your productivity that weekly planning session. We get into how to do it, when to do it, and what makes it so powerful. Now here's the conversation.
1: You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rockstar boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer stewart
0: Thank you so much for joining me today, Demir. I'm really excited to talk about rituals and and the kind of daily planning and the calendar management, all of that stuff that's supposed to help us, I think, be more productive, but maybe sometimes doesn't always help us be more productive. But uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right. So let's start with this idea of the daily rituals, because as we were preparing for this call, you were, when, I, when I brought this topic up, you're like, yes, 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 because this is something that people just maybe get wrong a lot. So can you share this little insight about what are these daily rituals? Why do we need them? What's happened to them? And uh, why, what are we supposed to do with them?
1: Yeah. So I'll, I'll zoom out a little bit and just talk about the productivity slash personal development landscape. I don't think Anybody in this landscape that I've met has any malintent, but what has happened is it's devolved into what I call a very fractured or atomized productivity, personal development space where everybody it's, it's really easier to break through the space when you sort of take one small idea and you run with it, you make it seem as if that small idea is everything right? So atomic habits or the five second rule. And I love these authors and I love these ideas, but the net effect of everybody grabbing one small idea and sort of magnifying it as if it's the most important thing in your productivity is you sort of get a population of people who sort of say, well, which of these 10,000 ideas is the most important idea? And what we've done recently is sloshed over towards this fetishism around daily routines and you name it morning routines, meditation routines, evening routines, uh, you know, it's just become this fetishization of if I could just get the right daily routine, well, then everything else would fall into place. And let me be the first person to give you the bad news that that is really not the end of the bat that you want to be swinging from.
0: Well, why? What, what's so what's so bad about all these routines? Aren't they supposed to like help us get in the right mindset and help us get our day in order and all those, those things that are going to make us more productive?
1: Yeah. So it's not that there's anything bad about it. It's really more that that's the wrong way to Enter this space and start thinking about it. Because again, when people come to me, it's weird, maybe They often have read more books on productivity than even I have, right? I mean, these people are not starting from zero. They've made huge efforts. But the problem is, the more that they read, the more they get confused. They're not converging towards a clearer understanding or a workflow that works for them. They're actually getting more and more and more confused, which puts them more and more and more in action. Or worse, they did actually give everything to starting the right daily routine, but it sort of didn't work. It didn't change the game like it was supposed to. So if I can give you an an analogy here that everybody can draw from, you want to think about your workflow. Forget the word productivity. I don't like that that much. Let's think about workflow. Workflow is the big umbrella term for everything in your productivity. It's just how everything flows from Monday when you get up all the way through Friday when you hang up your spurs, right? Workflow. And If you think about workflow, you want it to feel like riding a bike and and just like riding a bike in the beginning, riding bike often feels like 10 skills in one, because it really is your brain is thinking, okay, hold on to the handlebars. Don't let go, but you also have to steer with your hands and you're navigating with your eyes and you're trying to keep balance with your core, but you also have to pedal with your legs. I mean, it really is like you're doing 10 things at once. And so no wonder it's confusing and it's disoriented. And sometimes we fall down in the beginning. But very quickly, it starts to converge into one experience, which is simply riding a bike. And people who haven't even ridden bikes maybe for five, 10 years can still get on a bike and, and they don't talk about it as all of its composite skills. They just talk about it as simply, well, I rode the bike from here to there, meaning disparate skills converged into one. That's really where you want your productivity workflow to be for you and for your team. You want it to feel like one experience, simply winning your week getting on the bike, rolling through your week and everything converges. The problem with atomized productivity cultures where we obsess about, say, morning routines or how we run our day in some atomized way is that it's pulling our focus from the totality of our workflow and everything converging together and just feeling easier to an obsession over the micro at the expense of the macro.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I can understand why we're trying to, plug all of these individual components together to make our days be more efficient, to make ourselves be more focused. And it feels like so much work to do that. And then it ends up not getting us the benefits we want. So – you know, what else are we supposed to do, right? If, if these things aren't working in isolation and they're such a heavy lift and we're, we're getting them wrong and they're not getting the payoff, then what's the alternative approach? Because we still all need to be productive. We still all need to learn all these skills and these, you know, individual components as you described them to be able to have that workflow, to be able to ride the bike seamlessly.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting. we just jumped really to the to the meat and potatoes of why we even started our company. And it's funny, we just wrote a book, but we've been in business for 10 years and often have said, there's not a need for more books. We don't need more ideas in the productivity space. What we need is more integration. And so when we started Lifehack Method, we thought of ourselves less as researchers and more as clinicians, right? And so if you follow that analogy, we were less trying to break new ground in productivity and more trying to bring what we had already with the ground that had already been broken, the amazing innovative ideas and concepts and technologies, and bring them to people in a way that they could actually yield the benefit in their life. So often what we do when we're coaching with people is we're really showing them a very simplified system that integrates all of this and help them navigate the process of integrating it. So um, this is the very light version, but we have a four-step process. The first step is getting radical clarity. So before you integrate you know, habits, techniques, technologies. We really just focus on, do you know where you're going? Do you have radical clarity? If you could only do one thing and that one thing would with the game, what would that be? So if that's step one, we always start there with the client, almost on a blank sheet of paper. Step two is more self-mastery. And this is where a lot of the traditional productivity techniques come in. And we, we like to think that one of the benefits that we lend to our clients is we're not just telling them what they should be doing. We're telling them all the things that they shouldn't, because it's such a crowded space. You know, you're, you're friend at a party and you, know, you go to a party, you're going to come away with 10 different productivity techniques and 10 different recommendation, recommendations for books. So uh, in stage two, when we're helping people self-mastery, one of the ways that we serve people is to say, Hey, all of that stuff you can disregard. This is what's really gonna make an impact simplified. Let's start doing this and people see a result. Stage three that we take people through then is assuming you've got clarity, assuming you've got some level of self-mastery, meaning your productivity hygiene is dialed in. Then we talk about using technology and systems to magnify your output. This is where we would get people into delegation or you know, automation, you know some more of the fancy stuff that really magnifies your productivity so that you can do the work of 10 people. And then stage four, which we could talk about maybe later, is really lifestyle design. Is all of this adding up to the life that you really want to be living? So just to quickly recap, stage one would be getting radical clarity. Stage two is all of the productivity basics. Stage three would be systematizing your life and leveraging, you know, really breaking through the boundaries of productivity using technology and other people. And then stage four is, is it leading you to the lifestyle you really want to be living? And so that's the arc, that we travel with people in a sort of—I know this sounds silly to say—in productivity in our clinical work.
0: I actually I love that phrasing, and it's—I uh, might start to adopt that kind of mindset or that kind of phrasing with with my work too, um, because that's very similar to the way that I approach work with my clients. So I actually want to go to step two a little bit more, and this self mastery, this you know figuring out what are the right behaviors or routines or practices for yourself—is it something that's kind of across the board there are a few things that everyone should do and we're all then we're kind of good to go and anything around that is like you know fancy for the edges or is it really individualized per person and and how do you then figure out what are the right things for you to do based on your personality your role whatever it is that might be those factors
1: yeah this is an incredible question i mean i'll even step take a step back so people know you know it's it's actually important to know who i am to answer this question so about 15 years ago I was working in Wall Street and just so you know maybe I'm the kind of person who was successful sort of in spite of my productivity not because of it um my mother recently uh, laughed so hard that she spit coca-cola out of her nose trying to explain to her friends that that I was the son who became the productivity coach that concept was so funny to her because I was the you know least productive child that she had and and so I really although I was smart and I got into a good school I, I usually had to work 80 hours to get 40 hours of work done. And I, I just foreground that to say, hey, you're talking to somebody who has tremendous empathy for people who are smart and maybe have been able to finagle their way into a successful position, but they know they've done so really in spite of their productivity habits and their basics that they've done or not done, not because of it. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, it does. And <laughs> I'm thinking about my own children right now and hoping that they'll uh they'll turn around maybe like you did.
1: Yeah, I mean I I, I so what happened to me is I was working Wall Street was working 80 hours a week and had a health crisis that that nearly killed me. And it was sort of a forced stricture where from the outside, my doctor said, hey, you've got to stop working over 40 hours a week. You could actually die from what you're suffering from right now. And so that really forced me to step back. And instead of just reading productivity books or you know engaging in the productivity fetishism that we all do, it really forced me to step back and focus on integration and say, okay, what? of what I actually know, what is actually going to get the biggest impact. So coming back to your question of like, what on the foundations of productivity have the biggest impact? When I went home from my doctor that day, I'm talking about, I had a, I saw a doctor on a Friday. They said I had to work, go from working 80 hours a week to 40 hours a week, pretty much overnight, that, that very next week. So I went home and the very first thing is I had what I call my first real planning session of my life, and I call it my first real planning session because previously I had been doing something that wore the clothes of planning but was not actually planning. And what I mean by that is, there's a very specific. We, in fact, in our a book that's coming out, a shameless plug there, we've actually got five discrete steps. If you take any one of those steps up out of that process, you're not actually doing a planning. You're doing sort of something that very much, you know, barks. And quacks like planning, but it really isn't a planning process. So I would say for anybody, and I get asked I get asked this question at parties all the time, okay, you're a productivity coach. What's the number one thing I need to be doing? I always say planning, planning your week. Now, I just want to pause here maybe and say that almost everybody says, well, I plan. Okay, let's put some data in here. I surveyed 5,000 professionals who manage between five and 50 people very much like your audience, right? People who manage other people. So let's just assume that if you're if you're put in charge of somewhere between five and 50 other people, you're successful. You know how to work. You've distinguished yourself, right? So these are not unproductive people. These are not losers. We surveyed them about what they thought the most important productivity tactics were to win your week. Meaning what's the most important thing that you have to do to win your week? 94% of them said that planning your week ahead of time was crucial to winning your week. I think everybody out there is probably nodding like, okay, duh, this is an obvious statement, but here's where things get interesting. We followed up with those 5,000 people. We said, okay, if planning is so important, how many times in the last four weeks, or have you planned your week for the last four weeks? We just wanted to get a sense maybe of out of these 5,000 people, who has a regular planning practice in place? Do you want to take a guess what that percentage was?
0: Like 30%.
1: Less than 1%. What? Now, not to say that nobody had not planned, but less than 1% had planned all four of the last four weeks where we had surveyed them, right? So less than 1% had a consistent planning practice in place. So often when I bang the drum about planning your week, people say, well, Demir, come on, man, I'm not talking to you for the simple stuff. I know the simple stuff. Give me the advanced stuff. But here's the thing are you doing this thing? What I have found through this survey and through work with my clients is planning your week is something that everybody gives lip service to. But when you actually scratch beneath the surface, hardly anybody is actually doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I see the same thing with meetings. Everyone knows you should have an agenda and so few people actually create one, right? It's the same concept that you got to plan so that you can focus your work, focus your conversations, focus your energy and your time on the things you're trying to accomplish. So why don't people actually follow through with planning or like, why are we not doing this thing that we know we should do? And like, how can we get ourselves to actually go do the planning and do it in a way that is going to really help us and not just, you know, be going through the motions?
1: That's the essential question, right? What, how is it that we know there's something we have to do and yet we're not doing it? It actually makes perfect sense when you think of us less as rational actors who are having emotion and more as emotional actors who have the capacity every once in a while to act rationally, right? So if you think about us as an animal, not as a human being, right? Or you think about our animal self, our animal brain is designed to move us away from pain and towards pleasure right? That's an oversimplification, but it's a helpful simplification. And so what is planning, if not one of the least comfortable 30 minutes of your week? I mean, when you really think about it, to plan your week correctly, you're accelerating a week's worth of stress, fear, anxiety, and negative realizations into one 30-minute sessions. That's going to be an incredibly uncomfortable 30 minutes, right? That's the 30 minutes where you discover, oh my God, I'm double booked. That's the 30 minutes where you discover, oh my God, that huge project is coming down the pipeline, right? And so uh, let me say something controversial. Even when done perfectly right, a planning session is going to induce stress, fear, and anxiety. I think people think that there's some way to plan their week where, oh, if I'm planning my week correctly, then I will feel great about it. No, actually planning done perfectly right will induce some level of stress, fear, and anxiety. And if you play that cycle through enough, by adulthood, many of us have somewhere between a very negative to an almost violent revulsion to planning. And you might still be saying in your logic brain, I want to plan, but your animal brain is firmly in the camp of this is negative. This stresses us out. This makes us feel terrible on our weekend. And even when you allocate the time, people find somehow miraculously, they slip out of it. They evade it. They avoid it.
0: All right. So now we know why we're trying to avoid it. So what do we do then? How how do you build your routine so that you do this weekly paneling? And then what are the most important things that we should do? Right. I heard you say 30 minutes maximum. So what do we do in those 30 minutes?
1: Yeah. I mean, let me, let me step back and say, if we put the pain that you experience from planning your week on a scale and on 10 on that scale, let's talk about the worst stomach flu you've ever had right? So let's call that 10. And let's call one like a painful sort of pebble in your shoe, right? If you put, if that's your pain scale, let's call planning your week, like maybe a two or a three. So let's also get real. Like this is not the most painful thing that you could experience, right? So yes, it creates stress, fear, and anxiety, but it's sort of a low-grade stress, fear, and anxiety. It can easily be overcome if you have the right reward in place. So I'll sort of back up and say, One of the things that my wife and I discovered is that when we actually do a planning session that is rewarding in and of itself, we go down to a cafe, this really fancy brunch place. We go Saturday morning, we get a babysitter, we go by ourselves, we sit down, we plan our week for 30 minutes. We sort of, you know, consult with each other. Okay, I just did my plan. You've done your plan. We sort of cross consult okay, what do you know that I need to know? What do I know that you need to know? And then we sit there for another hour and a half and two hours. And we found that it's way better than date night. It's actually so, so much better than date night because, well, first of all, we can get babysitting for it. Um, But the second thing is that we feel really connected. and, And after we get a plan in place and we know that we've sort of faced our fears and looked at the week there's actually a rush that comes after that and, and many people who have planned can recall they can summon to mind a feeling of like yeah it was hard to get myself there but actually I felt so good on the other side sort of almost a release or a rush that you get from having faced your fears and when you do that together with your spouse or your business partner it actually is multiplied you you get this sort of connectedness on the other side of it so so our reward that makes us want to go is that we've sort of treated ourselves to this incredibly luxurious brunch with the promise that it's like, hey, you can do this if you do your planning. And so it's really not hard to get yourself to overcome a three out of a 10 scale of pain if you induce yourself with the right reward.
0: I love that. And I'm also imagining it could apply to a team where everyone together on Monday morning hops on a Zoom, does their independent work, gets to like share and bounce ideas off of each other. And you can kind of walk away after, you know, 30 or 45 minutes feeling more connected to your team members, knowing everyone's got their plan in place for the week and have it not feel heavy handed. Like as a manager, I am coming down from the top saying, I need to know what you're doing this week.
1: Yeah. I mean, this could be something we could talk about in your uh, bonus session for your paid subscribers. But Monday is the very worst time that you could be planning and having your team plan their week.
0: Yeah, let's stay on what's the right structure of planning. And then in our bonus section, we'll talk about why not Monday, what's the best time and any other tips for how to do it collectively as a team.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, when I think about planning, one of the things they've worked, we've worked to do is create something, and this is actually the substance of our book that's coming out. It's called Winning the Week, How to Plan Your Week Successfully to Win the Week in Less Than 30 Minutes. And so that's the promise. And we want to show people a radically simplified process that you can do in less, it's five steps, it takes less than 30 minutes. And it's sort of, uh, it's sort of like taking the medicine, right? We've really gotten the pill as small as you could possibly swallow it. And so that's, that's what we fancy is the innovation here. Not that it'll, not that this is something you never could have imagined. It's really just, this is the culmination of 10 years of quote unquote clinical work in the trenches with tens of thousands of people that we've coached in their day-to-day productivity. We've just found that this is the simplest that we could make it. And there's, there's really five steps. Step one, Actually, there's a step zero, if I may. Step zero is what we call remove the resistance. And I call it step zero because if you do it once and you do it right, you'll never have to do it again. It's really like a foundational, like this is a setup that you have to do. And it really is what we just spoke about, which is to set up a planning process that induces you to want to do it, where the reward of doing the planning exceeds the avoidance that you have around the planning. And if you do that once and you do it right, you'll never have to do it again. Okay, so that's step zero. Step one is to learn a lesson. In any practice in life, whether it's guitar or piano, you want to do intentional, effortful improvement, right? Effortful practice, effortful improvement means that you didn't just practice piano. You actually listened back to a bit of your session and said, okay, that's actually something that I'm doing wrong. Let me improve on that. And with just five minutes in your planning practice, if you take five minutes before you start and you say, okay, how did last week go? What's one thing I did right? What's one thing I did wrong? What's something I should keep doing, right? And if you bring that and you fold that into your practice, not with like, you know, we're not talking about 50 minutes. I'm just talking about a really quick reflection on learning one lesson. What you'll find is that your improvement process starts to go exponential because now you're implementing effortful practice, effortful improvement. You've created a learning loop, an improvement loop that quickly compounds. So that's step one, learn a lesson, integrate it compound your improvement. Step two is we always jump into people's priorities. And we always say find one leveraged priority. And by leverage, what we really mean is the classic Gary Keller, Jay Papasan definition of leverage. What is something that I could do this week that doesn't just get things done? It doesn't get people off my back. It's actually something that will make every week and every month easier in the future. And when you bring leverage to your life, again, it compounds, right? If I do something for the next 52 weeks that makes my life consistently easier, imagine how much easier my life is going to feel a year from now with 52 weeks of targeting things that are going to make my life permanently easier, make things unnecessary. That alone, I mean, those two things alone, implement some kind of lesson learned and find leverage and implement leverage and prioritize leverage in your week. I mean, if you stop there already, you'd be ahead of the pack. The next thing we do in our planning process is we actually scan your calendar. And I do what we call interrogation of calendar, meaning instead of just a calendar review, we actually really step through with a harsh interrogation, like a spotlight. We really analyze our calendar, not just for the next seven days, but for the next 14 days. So if you're looking at your calendar harshly every seven days with a rolling 14-day glance, what you're going to do is you're never going to get taken by surprise right? When we're, when we're not scanning our calendar right, or we're just doing a casual review, or we're not looking out 14 days, what happens is we tend to get taken by surprise by things. And this is what I call the stupid tax, the unforced errors, where you slap yourself in the face and you say, God, I should have caught that. And now it's, I'm going to pay a huge price in time and stress and anxiety. And in fact, I'll pause for all those managers out there, because I know that's primarily who's listening. If you just, in your entire team, removed the stupid problems, the problems that could have been foreseen, right? The landmines that you could have scanned, your team will, on a compounding base, operate so much better because often when it when you get these landmines, these emergencies, that takes the whole team off their off their game because you know LaSalle didn't foresee something coming down the pike, and then it occurs to her as an emergency, and now she sends up the red flare and says, "Everybody, please stop and help me because now this thing I should have caught." 14 days out, since I didn't, now it's an emergency and and it doesn't just affect me. I'm pulling in my whole team. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, it, it really does. And it it's so true that like these things that are often like, you know, flares going up and fires that need to get put out. Wouldn't necessarily need all of that attention if we were thoughtful and if we were looking ahead and if we were projecting and then, you know, making the right moves up front.
1: My experience is, and this is very rough numbers. But the vast majority of quote-unquote emergencies that teams face were what I call unnecessary emergencies, meaning they could have been for- foreseen, they could have been mitigated in a massive way. And so if 80 or 70% of your emergencies are unnecessary, that doesn't mean you don't still have things that no matter what you've done, you could not have foreseen this. Well, great, now you have so much time and energy and intention to face those emergencies. There's nothing worse than a week when you had five unnecessary emergencies that compound the sixth and seventh necessary emergency. That's that's those nightmare weeks where you really, you know, you just really get grounded and pounded. Okay. Step four is then we go to your to-do list. We scan your to-do list and we triage your tasks, almost like a triage doctor. You know, triage doctors cannot... You know, if you're if you're on the front lines of a battle and you've got mass casualties, the truth is you can't help everybody. And Napoleon's doctors in the Napoleonic Wars realized that they were actually letting more people die overall by trying to treat everybody. Meaning your attempt to treat every patient is actually resulting in more death and sickness overall. And so the courageous thing is to actually create a classification system and say, who how can I do the most good? And and take the hard medicine that doing the most good often means courageously deciding what's going to die ahead of time. And that's so hard emotionally to look at something and say, I'm not going to get that project to that person. This is not going to happen. This person's going to have to get disappointed so that I can do more good overall. That's step four. And then finally, step five is calendarizing, marrying them together. Once you have your time supply and your time's demands, you really need to bring them together and, and prepare yourself Take a very deep, courageous breath. What that really means is that it means allocating every single 30-minute increment of your week to a purpose. A very important principle of the Winning the Week method is that if you say that you're going to do something, that you also allocate the specific time and place when you're going to do it. That doesn't mean you can't switch it. That doesn't mean you can't trade. It just means that you're. what I used to do, maybe in my old life, is I used to have this huge open calendar and a giant to-do list. And I hoped that somehow at the end of the week that they would balance out. Spoiler alert, they never did, right? I always ended up chasing the long tail of my tasks into infinity and running out of time and not having gotten the important things done. So a a critical principle is to actually take something off your to-do list and put it in your calendar and say, this big, important project, or even just this email processing session, it's going to happen on this time at this day. So that's the five steps of the Winning the Week method. Really, it's as simple as that, five simple steps. And if you've covered those five steps, you're gonna have a winning plan for the week, guaranteed.
0: Oh my gosh, I love this. And I am so glad that we got through these five steps. And I'm really excited for people to to get your book and to learn more because we are now out of time. So Demir, can you tell us about a great manager that you worked for and what made this person such a fantastic boss?
1: Okay, this is going to seem like a really silly response, but it is genuinely my honest answer. Before we were romantically involved, my wife was my boss. It's true. We did a partnership with her company and they put her in charge of us. And she was the run, running the meetings and, and making the, sure the trains ran on time. And I remember thinking before, I, I didn't even know what she looked like. She was just a disembodied voice on the phone. And I remember thinking, damn, this woman can run a meeting. I have never (laughs) seen someone run a better meeting than this woman. And I I remember looking to my left and my right. Have you ever been in a better meeting? (laughs) She really just without, with zero ego, she just made sure that everybody was prepared. She cut people off if they were starting to get into the story, but it never felt that she was trying to put people down. she was always, always nursing the project forward. Her questions were always insightful. She could always smell the BS. You know, it just felt like she was the perfect balance of somebody who made the trains run on time without making it about her. And it never felt personal and it never felt emotional. And that's actually, and I'll just raise my hand and say, I was the CEO of a company um, before this company and had a big team and I was really poor at it (laughs) as a really poor manager. And it's interesting because it's really interesting to have been in charge of many people. It gives you a newfound respect and you can really appreciate when you see somebody doing it the right way.
0: Wow. And amazing that you got to marry her. So such a lovely story.
1: Yeah. I, I joke that I liked the position of employees so much that I made it permanent. <laughs> now I'm, uh- <laughs> I'm her permanent employee.
0: <laughs> amazing. And where can people learn more about you and keep up with your work?
1: Yeah. I, I think what's most important right now is that we've got this book coming out, Winning the Week, which is the culmination of 10 years of this clinical work that we've done in the trenches with over, at this point, I can't believe it, 50,000 people that we've gotten a chance to interface with. So it's not just some productivity idea that we sort of dreamed up in our garage. It's actually the result of a lot of Work that we've done and that our clients have done, and we're trying to bring it back and sort of release it into the broader world. So, check that out at winningtheweek.com. That's winningtheweek.com. And if you're too itchy, if you don't like books or you're too itchy and you want to get it sooner, we also have a hour long video training on that process again at winningtheweek.com.
0: Well, thank you so much again for joining me today. Super fascinating conversation. I'm definitely going to make some changes to my weekly planning process. So, I appreciate all that you've shared today.
1: Awesome. Thank you for having me.
0: Demir is providing 20 members of the Modern Manager community a free Kindle version of his book, Winning the Week. This book dives into detail on the five-step method that we reviewed that radically reimagines how you plan and execute your week. This offer is available to members of the Modern Manager community at the Sprout level and above. To join, go to themodernmanager.com slash join. And even if the Sprout level isn't right for you, I highly encourage you to join at the seed level, which is that $5 per month, where you get the extended interviews. Demir and I talk about when is the optimal time to do the weekly plan and how to do it with your team to really supercharge it. You can listen to the full interview only if you're a member. Again, that site is themodernmanager.com join. As usual, all the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.
1: Meetings are one of the most
0: critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com.
1: You've been listening to The Modern Manager, you're already becoming a rockstar boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.